KZSU, Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This show all about municipal finance, crises, budgeting, and much more. Today the program, we have back on Eason, NDI, and Ollie Zoo. And we are talking all about how ugly municipal finance is looking like in a COVID world and what the threat of austerity is in the future. Without further ado, let's just get into things. So welcome back, Asen. Hey, how you doing? Doing all right, and uh, welcome again, Ollie. Hey, what's up? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately not uh, chilling out in the station. Uh, unfortunately, we're uh, telecommuting. It's 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 not great. It's whatever it is. Yeah. You're 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 both doing a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on Zoom calls basically all day long, and I always have to like watch out to not make sure people don't see me like eating food or like dribbling water down my my shirt or something like that. What's well, so, a so related question, which is just if everyone is just on their computer, like, I mean, do you th- like why why aren't you just based out of Topeka? Why aren't you based in some low cost of living place? You know, why are we all in the hell of of the Bay Area? Uh, if everything is, you know, do you think it's going back to normal, uh, you know, soon enough that people won't just make this the new normal? I mean, I think like any company that may have been thinking about having a distributed workforce, but like was thinking like, oh, well, you know, that's not how anybody does it. And like, what about those like felicitous encounters in the hallways or in the stairways or in the elevator? Like, are we going to be missing that kind of like, interior friction that's like super necessary uh that's what they uh, love to, to like but it's a luxury and stuff uh but i mean if things work out for those companies during the during this crisis i think a bunch of them are going to be like hey you want to move to denver move to denver like it's totally fine like we know that your productivity is not going to go down we know we're still going to be able to you know have meetings on a regular basis and stuff like that I think especially for that middle layer of tech, not so much, you know, I think the, the big guys are going to keep this going. Um, or sorry, the big guys are going to like bring people back to their like mega campuses. But for like those like 40, 40 employee uh, tech companies that do like super basic, you know, uh, mechanical stuff on the internet. Um, I don't know. I don't know that being in, San Francisco or in Soma is really like the super super necessary. Well, there's kind of like it's like you have the big like the big you know animals in the jungle like the hippos. Then you have like the kind of lower ones that clean their teeth and all these. And I feel like all these you know like the lower the the lower megafauna and then all these other kind of uh, thing in the infrastructure. I I think you know there's ones like uh I heard today an SF firm is moving to Tempe. Uh, and that's a cheap place to be based oh, out yeah. of. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been having a really, really hard time. Um, I think for certain types of uh, engineering work, it's just really tough if you can't just, like, if you're having a discussion, you can't just, like, get in a room and just, like, grab a whiteboard and just work on it together. Um, I know, like, there are ways to get around it, but it's it's just, it just feels like everything is a, a lot harder. <laughs> Which is yeah. to bring it back. I mean, we're we're comparing this. You know, right now we're f- going to be facing an austerity crisis, uh, which is you know perhaps comparable to two thousand eight. Uh, but I think there's a chance that if there is a domino effect, it could be considerably worse, especially for the Bay Area. If you do have a lot of the assumptions about growth 
might uh, take a step backwards. And I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, ASIN has been on before and talked about a lot about kind of, you know, what 2008 looked like. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious, like, just kind of aggregate, you know, throughout the Bay Area, what you, what you're, what are you seeing and what do you predict about kind of the future of how, you know, city finances are going to adjust to this? Yeah, I mean, I think why we are facing in the Bay Area is that we essentially built um, an iron ship. And I don't know if for folks who are like super familiar with like um, a lot of like older wars and when they started like building those kind of like iron side ships. No, does this ring a bell? Was like Civil, Civil War was like the first big one? Like, Bonner, like America, uh, this that started thing? I think in the American Civil War and then it became like more and more of a thing in World War One. Um, before like the they actually time. fixed this problem. I'm sorry? Like they, they've always been like wooden ships and then the first time they were making it with iron or? Yeah, exactly. They were okay. making like these 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 warships, and when they were building them, um, a lot of times they were thinking to themselves, "Well, this is this is amazing. Uh, we're going to have like so much armor. These are going to be armed to the teeth. Uh, we're going to have cannons. This is going to be amazing. We'll never lose a war ever again." Um, and then they realized that in combat, a lot of these ships, without without the right cooling methods. Would essentially turn into hot boxes um, and <laughs> make it essentially impossible for a crew to be able to uh, maintain the systems. And they didn't realize this, of course, until like crises or actual until these ships were actually put into combat situations. Um, in a lot of ways, I feel like what the COVID nineteen crisis is sh- is showing is that it is uncovering a lot of the assumptions and weaknesses of the way in which California funds social services. Um, For a long time, California has just looked at itself as like, we are this iron ship, right? We are this nation state where we have the world's fifth largest economy. We have the tech industry, the movie industry. Uh, We have these, uh, this huge tourism industry. We, you know, we are basically um, like so, so, so robust. I mean, at some point, even, you know, you would look at the California state budget and you would look at the reserves that Jerry Brown built and you would think, no, like we are ready for anything that comes. And what the reality is, we were actually setting ourselves up for a situation in which if there was a real economic slowdown, a lot of the ways in which local governments, especially funded themselves, would just fall apart, right? We're talking about sales taxes. We're talking about uh, tourism taxes, transit or, uh, uh, transient occupancy taxes. Uh, we're talking about um, uh, general business taxes, head, uh, head taxes. And so if you have something like this, where you have a huge slowdown in economic activity, you have uh, massive uh, layoffs, um, and you have just even just lower activity period, gas taxes, for example, right, is, are coming in uh, drastically lower. Um, I've always been kind of... For layoffs, you know? Yeah. I've, I've been frustrated, I think, because, you know, like, uh, I feel like the ritziest cities like Palo Alto or something tend to go in on, like, hotel taxes. It's like, oh, look at you. You can even get hotel taxes. And that's, you know, that's like the right now, certainly during the crisis, down to zero. And who right. knows what tourism is going to be like for a year or two at, well, I mean, the the biggest issue is that the cities and governments of the Bay Area 
looked at taxes in the, the same way that like a really, really novice, like investor in the stock market looks at, looks at taxes. They're like, okay, all right, I've got a hundred dollars. I'm going to buy $90 worth of like Apple stock and then 10%, like $10, I'm going to put it in like one index fund or something like that. When in reality, of course, they should have diversified their portfolio of revenue streams, right? And instead, in, for a lot of local governments, it was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be mostly funded by, you know, highly volatile sources like sales taxes, um, and only have a tiny slice for from property taxes, which are much more stable, are able to weather many in many cases um, these kinds of huge fluctuations with these huge economic impacts, right? Um, but even property taxes, right? You want to see a very, very, very robust um, set of different income sources or revenue streams so that if there is a huge, huge impact in one sector, you are not essentially like left open to um, bankruptcy, right? Or to uh, dramatic uh, uh, decreases in in your workforce and in the services that you provide, right? Um, one example I've, I've just seen recently is that Santa Monica, uh, which is a very wealthy city, uh, was getting something like 40% of its general fund uh, revenue from tourism taxes, right? Um, wow. and, and you know now they're projecting 25% reduction in revenue uh, because the beaches have been closed in Santa Monica. And like that kind of thing is that it's it's almost like uh, for many local cities, their their current revenue um, uh, sort of uh, plans, it's almost like with their petro states, right? It's almost like they're like, you know, they're like Gulf states or something like that, where they have one big source of money coming in. And then if it, there's any fluctuation in that revenue, they're just like in crisis mode. Yeah, it's like the resource curse in a way of just kind of it gives you the luxury to say like, oh, don't tax us. We'll tax, you know, uh, you know, we'll, 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 we won't take the hit. I mean, I've been complaining on different city councils, you know, talking about, oh, how do we fund stuff? As a, uh, you know, it's like you're looking at sales tax or you're looking at other things like parcel taxes, you know, kind of the poor man's yeah. property tax because you can't do that in California under Prop 13. And, you know, I say, like, I know you're not going to pick the, the parcel tax because you'd be taxing yourself. You want to tax, you know, everyone else. You know, ideally, you want to tax the hotels because they're, you know, people from out of town. Uh, and, you know, it's they, they have the luxury to say, to say you know, not. Uh, I mean, I've, I've seen people say the sales tax. This is from the 60s when they're funding BART. Uh, calling it the coward's tax. <laughs> it is. Because, I mean, it yeah, it's like, is, if right? you don't want to fight for it, yeah. <laughs> it's so tiny. I mean, when I first came to Cal California, I didn't understand what they were saying when they said this is a one cent tax. I was like, what do you mean it's a one cent tax? And then I started realizing that what they mean is like one cent per dollar spent um, on, on the, when you're outspending. And of course, like part of the reason why they sell it that way is that it just doesn't sound very expensive when you're selling it to 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 voters also all of these like um and i know mark we've talked about this on a previous podcast is that uh the ghost of howard jarvis um is still here throwing pegs into our bike wheels 
um, you know, throwing grist in our in, in our wheels uh, because we uh, are now uh, unable to raise revenue in a way that would allow us to be able to recover from the COVID-19 response because of all these um, uh, limits on being able to raise money from, you know, the biggest sources of, of potential revenue, which is property taxes. Now, of course, on the ballot uh, this year, uh, we will have an opportunity um, to be able to uh, uh, close one of those huge, huge loopholes that was opened by Prop 13 uh, with schools and communities first. And hopefully that will be one way to help sort of make up for for that that huge, huge revenue loss. But I, I just really want people to understand to like that this is an opportunity to start opening up a conversation about why we're in this situation in the first place. And like, how do we um, set up the way in which we fund our cities in a way that's just, you know, and not to get biblical about this, but like, how do we start, you know, storing those seven years of grain um, so that when things happen, right, we do have reserves um, uh, to be able to make it through, right? It's very hard. I think you know people always complain that everyone's you know enumerate. People don't have like the uh, the math, you know, common sense you know thing in their brain. And I think people aren't. You know, we we haven't evolved to, to kind of uh, know huge numbers, and we have a huge problem with you know. Uh, budget shortfalls and other stuff but then i mean i think people only realize the, the split role prop 13 schools communities first uh would be also a gigantic magnitude uh but it's very because i think people want to find out like oh yeah we're willing to you know uh we'll, we'll use cheaper you know uh some ch- cheaper uh, paperwork in our offices or something like that yeah you know, yeah, just, yeah. Like, they want to start cutting yeah, yeah i mean i think you know i, I just want to talk about well, first, let me talk about just kind of, I think that scale is looking like right now at, at the state level. Um, I heard an estimate that potentially California by next year could see a $50 billion reduction in its uh, estimate, in its revenue estimates. I believe that's between 20 and 25% of the yearly of the uh, yearly budget, and it is $10 billion more than what the state had in reserves um, at the beginning of the year. Right, so we are like heading for basically, you know, is a a recession uh, that's you know magnitudes bigger than what uh, Jerry Brown had to deal with when he was uh, when he was first elected um, uh, governor. But I, I think maybe sometimes the two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten recession and the, its impact on local government gets memory hold. Um, and like people have um, potentially forgotten what the impact of austerity is and what it looks like um, on a personal level, right? Um, it means that you see potentially a reduction of like twenty percent in the in the in the, in the Cal the California food aids, and you're like, oh, well, that's not that big a deal, right? Uh, but how many meals is that uh, for children in California who are not going to be able to get that? How many 50 student classes are we talking about here? How many communities are not going to be receiving EMT help, are not going to be receiving fire services, are not going to be receiving public safety services, right? How many roads um, are going to go into disrepair and uh, screw up people's cars and create economic calamities for people who are like at the edge of financial collapse, right? And so like what austerity means is not just like a weakening of 
our um, social services, but I think it's like an a the it's it frees at our like human bonds in a way that is just to me like just insidious. It just turns it makes people like selfish and mean, and it turns them against each other uh, because they start operating from a scarcity mindset, right? And that I think is like the worst part of austerity and that could be something that's bearing down toward us um if if we don't um if if we don't raise the funds necessary and i'm wondering you said a few minutes ago about one of the big issues is uh things at the local level are usually kind of the most dysfunctional Mm -hmm. but we're having you know budget shortfalls at the highest level as well and i'm kind of wondering you know there's an issue of just the overall you know there's an overall deficit uh, you know, in money coming in. But then on top of it, there's also allocation issues. Who's getting it in what magnitudes mm-hmm. and why? Who is going to who is going to feel the biggest pinch? Yeah. Uh, and I know there's all sorts of weird, weird uh, things like, you know, Prop 13 is bad. But another thing that's bad about it is uh, it allocates stuff based upon populations in uh, the 1970s. So I think it means proportionally, if you have a, uh, you know, a Central Valley, you know, city that's grown because we're not growing here, they are losing money on a year by year basis mm-hmm. based upon how much they actually get out of the funds. And yeah. uh, I'm just kind of wondering what, any thoughts about, you know, what allocation is going to look like I mean, uh, when the pinch comes. Even, even the things that are like set up to um, help are going to unfortunately have to deal with these um, in allocation impediments and, and inequalities that, that you just talked about, uh, not just at the school district level, but at the municipal level as well. Uh, one uh, chart I saw uh, was that on a per capita basis, uh, Palo Alto will receive $7 for every dollar that San Jose receives from schools and communities first. Obviously, this is not an argument against schools and communities first, because uh, honestly, the amount of money that San Jose could raise from schools and communities first would close that current uh, uh, budget hole. I mean, but we do have to think about, like, I'm sorry? That's just more of an illustration of how bad uh, the, the property tax situation is in Palo Alto. Right? I mean, completely, right? Um, and it's just show, it just goes to show that, like, um there were problems before COVID-19 and all that I mean what COVID-19 is doing is essentially like just bringing them up to the surface and like you know shining a light in this cockroach filled uh property tax system right (laughs) so well I mean uh, not not to be morbid because I mean I think right now the issue is like survival but I think Mm -hmm. anybody who has been sensible at municipal finance has always said a crisis is coming. It's going to be ugly. And part of what people need to do is to get ahead of it, prepare, mm-hmm. and actually use it as an opportunity to fix things that have been broken. Yeah. And I, I think I think we want to just worry about, you know, surviving this and making sure everyone is, you know, healthy and good. But I think we also need to work on long-term fixes mm-hmm. uh, at a, you know, because a crisis time is a time for opportunity in a, in a, in a morbid way. And I'm just, I'm, I mean, I think... Well, I mean, I feel like there are two... There are two potential responses to this. I mean, one response is what you just mentioned, right? Which is that people look at schools and communities first. They look at other potential ways to raise revenue, and they think to themselves, um, "People, people were hurt. People are hurting, and we need. They need to get back on their feet, and we really need to help fund these services so that people can get back on their feet." Um, and that could be a response, right? Like a sort of generous 
um, open-hearted response. I think there's a flip side to this, right? And I think we started the episode talking about uh, the layoffs that are happening in in the tech industry, right? Um, and there are, it's obviously happening in a bunch of other industries, entertainment, uh, uh, hospitality, and so on. But one of the things I've been seeing, uh, you know, it's not a lot of people, but you know, it's the, it's you guys know who I'm talking about, um, is a little bit of glee and cheering happening that this is that 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 these layoffs are happening in in these uh, in the tech industry or in in these other industries. Where because we're finally it means that I'm sorry, we're finally going to get the San Francisco that uh, I remember from like 15 years ago. Or 20 years ago. exactly like people are like finally they're gonna stop bothering like bugging us to build you know housing or to house these workers because they're gone now right or at least like yeah. that's the idea yeah. um and they're this economic magnet that they've that they've been you know uh, having to deal with uh, that's been paying for their roads and that's been paying for their schools and paying for their community centers is actually going away now now, of course, you could think that potentially in people's heads, those two things are connected. But my experience has been that in many cases, it's not. People don't see the one-to-one relationship of that robust economy and those robust social services and public services. Um, but I think as austerity actually does bear down, libraries start closing, community centers have to cut, shut down their, their hours, lawns are not maintained, streets are not maintained, you might actually see potentially people really understanding where revenue comes from, actually, right? So At least currently. We're, we're, we're looking at uh, the scale of the austerity that California is facing is we're looking at $50 billion uh, less revenue than, I mean, something like that. Uh, than it's an what? estimate. That's the estimate. Um, so uh, that's 20, 25% of the budget. Do we have any context uh, or t- like uh, a way to compare that to other states? Because obviously other states are going to be facing austerity as well. But like other states and cities that have a more robust like, you know, um, tax system. Uh, is it going to be like is California like a part like the worst case that we're going to see? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, one of the things I wonder is like most likely by in just scale, we're probably we probably are the biggest the the biggest in like revenue loss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the way in which some states fund themselves means that they are essentially at, like at the barrel of a gun. Like I'm looking at Florida right now, and I don't know what they're going to do next year. Like I have no idea what Florida is going to do next year. Mm-hmm. Like that that state is funded by uh, tourism, um, uh, real estate transactions, uh, and sales taxes. It's just like they, they don't have, uh, they, they are a, um, essentially a tax haven for other states, right? Like yeah. people from New York moved to Florida to, um, uh, to escape like uh, wealth taxes and income taxes. Um, and so, because the state of Florida doesn't have an income tax, and so I have no idea what Florida is going to do. Um, I don't know what Texas is going to do. My home state. Um, they are primarily funded by business taxes and by sales taxes and by use fees, and I have no idea what this, that state is going to do. And like we had just, I mean, I, you know, this is just bringing a little bit of context into this. But in 2011, uh, so Texas meets every two years. 
the Texas legislature thinks every two years. And 2011 was the hardest, like most like austere budget I think the state of Texas had ever passed. It was just like Great Depression level kind of cuts, right? Um, and I mean, I don't know how many people died because of it, of, of that budget, that 2011 budget. And we had just gotten back, right? We had just gotten back to a budget that was, you know, even like, I wouldn't even say generous, but just enough to where there was enough money for to, to fund schools, to give teachers some raises, to, to fund for, uh, to help fund the local um, healthcare system. Um, and now next next session i think the austerity is coming back like next summer oof like it's gonna be uh it's gonna be it's gonna be a bloodbath in in texas i think to talk about like yeah what this means for just like growth in general i mean i think you know california has certainly in the 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 boomiest areas been uh the most slow growth but the the sunbelt cities have kind of had this you know, perpetual growth machine of just sprawl and, you know, everything kind of pays for the next generation. And I mean, I'd say on one hand, yes, I think it's, it's scary about how this kind of this, this pyramid scheme is going to deal with the fact that now uh, just the foundation for paying for everything is down. But I think this also kind of speaks to a larger issue of like suburban sprawl, uh, which I think leads to cheap suburban housing in places like Houston and Phoenix mm-hmm. and places like that too, can also mean that, you know, what is the public sector? What 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 are we spending on? Because there's kind of an implicit subtext that like, oh, everything is private. We have private streets, private, you know, everyone is supposed to like, oh yeah, you have your little little house, you know, you're on your own now. And I think that's, to me, I'm kind of scared about how much this is, uh, you know, this is kind of, indicating that we've gone all in on people living in their private little boxes. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, just to give you uh, one of those examples, uh, in Houston, um, which I, it's the oil capital of the U.S., in case folks were not aware, and the layoffs are, I mean, just already coming. Uh, but what I always say is that in Houston – whether or not you work directly for an oil company, everybody works for uh, the oil industry. Um, because if you work at a nonprofit, your donations are coming from the oil industry. If you work at the symphony, your donations come from the oil industry. The people with the best healthcare plans who can pay for your very expensive medical services in your, in your hospital come from the oil companies, right? Like there's basically very little in Houston that is not touched by the oil industry. Now, of course, you've heard that because there's been this, just this massive decrease in demand for oil, um, that uh, some futures contracts have gone into negative territory for for oil, right? I mean, you could, at one point, you could buy a barrel uh, of West Texas crude for less than a gallon of gas in California. Like it was just wild, right? Um, so there's and... tankers in the ocean looking for a place to unload their stuff. You know, <laughs> exactly, right? It's, 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 it was like anybody with a barge could, uh, could, could, <laughs> yeah. Get, yeah, could get some oil, you know? And I think what's become, what's like, what's uh, what the crisis is showing is that the knock-on effects, right? the later effects, the, the the third order, the fourth order effects of this, like yet to be seen, 
in Houston, they're clear now because of the oil, the oil collapse. But like, what are the knock-on effects of this in California, and especially around land use, right? Does it make sense now for anybody to commute from Hollister, right, to San Jose? Like, did they make that those decisions that were made, you know, uh, last year? Do they still make sense at this point? Like, there are some communities in Tracy where I'm sure unemployment is forty percent, right? Uh, because yeah. they're doing service jobs in um, in Silicon Valley, and the service jobs are gone, right? And who knows if they're coming back, right? So, like, yeah, as how I do we put on my environmentalist hat? I'm 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 pretty happy to see the highways not being jammed at six thirty in the morning. Right. But I mean, there's a lot of people who are who are hurting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I think this is kind of a question too about like fragility of kind of uh, this kind of private sprawl that comes out. I mean, uh, I think you know, back in the fifties and sixties, I think Detroit had the highest home ownership rate, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they kind of proved the most fragile insofar as just so much of the city, uh, you know, just it stopped being feasible, and you know just you know to the point of you know people. Uh, largely abandoned. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of factors, but the overall result, you know, there's a bunch of vacant, you know, uh, homes Properties. all throughout. And I remember you, you said you like, like you lived next to a vacant house. Yeah, point? I did. I did. Well, what down. was the story behind that? How'd you, how'd you end up there? Oh yeah. So I was working for a union in, um, in the Midwest and one of my territories of turfs, the things that I, I uh, did research for was uh, the state of Michigan, city of Detroit. And so we had an office in Detroit and I just ended up going to Detroit a bunch. I ended up just essentially start living there. Um, and the first place where I lived with one of my roommates was in Southwest Detroit uh, near Michigan Avenue, uh, oh, sorry, Verner, uh, 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 Verner Highway. And uh, yeah, it was just a normal street. Um, and a normal street usually has 40 houses on it. Um, and I think that street had 12, um, and like three of them were burned down, <laughs> you know, uh, there were just like vast open, open fields. And there, there was a lot of arson at the time in, in Detroit. So part of the reason why, so part of the reason why there's a lot of arson was, you know, there were a lot of squatters who were, uh, trying to build fires for, for warmth, but there were a lot also, of uh, people who would take out insurance contracts on houses and have arsonists come in and just like burn down the house and like collect on the insurance and just leave that the the house as it is. Um, like to talk about this idea of uh, like homeownership and foreclosure in this case, there's been a lot of talk about how you know this is mud, this is so different from 2008 2009 because a it's not a, a it's not a crisis in the financial sector. Right where it touches every sector of the of the economy. One, it's not, a not government. Yet, it's a it's a government um, uh, induced recession. Right. It's 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 local, state, federal government telling people to essentially um, not spend money. Right. And not engage in in in, in labor. Right. And then the last part is that well, this hasn't hit the home. Um, this hasn't hit the uh, homes yet, right? Because there's been a lot of action to, quote unquote, protect homeowners. But how long will that last? Like, oh. what are the, like, how long will that, well, those three things that people sort of like point to as being different from 2008, how, how long will those things last? When does the domi- when do the dominoes start falling, right? 
when do the people who lost their jobs couldn't pay their mortgages and the banks have been giving them two or three months that they're not going to get the job back and maybe they're going to go into foreclosure next year and so on and so on right like when do we go back to this to the situation that we had back in 2008 2009 and i think the places where it's going to happen are going to be different than 2008 2009 back then because you had this easy money the places that were most hit were um, sort of these like growth verbs, right? Or these like subdivisions, these kind of like speculative places like, uh, you know, the outer regions of Riverside County, uh, Clark County, Nevada, um, you know, uh, my, uh, Miami-Dade County, Florida, so on and so on, right? I feel like this time you're going to look at places like Wake County, North Carolina. Uh, you're going to see places like uh, Johnson County, Kansas, uh, like Oakland County, Michigan, um, hell, you know, you're going to see places like Alameda County, California, um, who are going to well, see... What do these places have in common? Well, they're, they are suburban in, in character, right? I think that they have had a growing presence of uh, new homeowners, uh, but who are mostly stably, like they're well, they're employed in a stable uh, profession, but they are hardcore middle class, um, not working class, middle class. But they are employed in sectors that are that I think are going to just massive reductions in employment. Um, so, for example, Johnson County, Kansas, is the home of Sprint of uh, Garmin, Electronics, uh, a few other of these kind of like consumer tech kind of companies. And who knows what's going to happen, but we're already seeing layoffs in this in that sector. Alameda County, which has been essentially the recipient of a lot of like wealth coming in from San Francisco, growth in the tech industry, growth in the manufacturing uh, sector. Who knows what's going to happen in the future for that? And so unlike the housing crisis the last time around in which people lost their houses and sometimes didn't lose their jobs, I think the fact that people are going to lose their jobs this time around means that there are going to be knock-on effects on, on housing. And the sectors in which people are losing their jobs are, yes, at the lower level in hospitality, in entertainment, in tourism, uh, but also at that middle layer, people are losing their jobs in tech, uh, people are losing their jobs in management, people are losing uh, their jobs in, I mean, I saw an announcement that uh, Airbnb was going to reduce its workforce by 25%, right? 1,700 people who most likely all lived in or near San Francisco are jobless, <laughs> right? And like, what, like where are they going to live? And imagine if they just bought a house in Oakland, right? <laughs> Like, who's going to pay that mortgage at this point, right? And so, like, there are, I think, potentially some knock-on effects coming this way. Um, I'm going to stop talking real quick, but I'm going to put a pin on the idea that there potentially are some risks and some opportunities because of those knock-on effects. Yeah, I think it was we were talking earlier about, you know, people are saying, oh, it used to be a hot market. Like, you know, the problem with housing in California is it's a hot market. And we just need to cool it down a bit. Uh, and then it'll be back to normal. Uh, we just need, and now we'll chill it for the fat cats, the highest paid tech workers, and so on. But I think the ugly side of that is 
you know, it's not really the tech workers who feel the pinch. It's, it's the people who are in, you know, different support industries in the orbit and so on. And I, mm-hmm. and I think, too, when things cool off, like it isn't a very natural, you know, rise and fall. It's incredibly ugly, you know, snapping and brittle structures break mm-hmm. because it's it's a it's we have so many weird dependencies. And uh, I mean, I just I, I think at one, it shows that I think people who are just, you know, rooting for, you know, the economy to collapse because everything will be fixed. It's always been delusional. Mm-hmm. But then, like, what is the you know, what is the, the right answer? I think, you know, it reflects a lot of choices we've made to make everything so brittle. And uh, so uh, while if we're making comparisons to the uh, foreclosure crisis in 2008, uh, so that uh, gives me a couple thoughts. Uh, the first is, well, uh, what kinds of uh, protections are we giving homeowners right now? And how long do you, uh, are those going to last? And the other uh, would be like, uh, if we're talking about um, like people who are making our tax system more robust with property taxes, um, if we're going to have like issues with foreclosures, we're also going to have people who are not going to be able to contribute to the tax base that way. Right. Um, are there any like workarounds to that or any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think you're right. Like one of the big questions that came up last time around was tax foreclosures, right. That people just couldn't pay their tax bills anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in like places like you know like West Oakland, South LA, and so on. Um, the the question about like what kind of help have homeowners received? Um, if you have an, if you have a federal government loan, so Freddie Mac, um, Fannie Mae, the Federal Housing uh, Administration, uh, you I think can, are eligible for like a loan forbearance for the next three months. Um, and then I think they'll tack on the balance the end of the, at the end of your loan. Um, for people who have mortgages with the four largest banks in California, um, I don't don't push me on remembering the names of those four banks, but uh, they like the the governor made a deal with them so that they would give people um, uh, mortgage relief for the next for as long as the COVID nineteen. Uh, emergency declaration was in effect and that they would tack on the payments again to the balance of the loan. And that's not every mortgage, that's not every every bank, but my understanding, at least from uh, anecdotal information, is that banks are working with every single one of their uh, mortgage holders about doing some kind of, um, you know, payment suspension, um, uh, adding to the uh, balance of the loan, so on and so on. The big difference, of course, between this uh, crisis and the last crisis is that there's a presumption that for most people, this is a very temporary suspension in, uh, or uh, potential interruption in income, right? Um, and I don't know how long that, that assumption is going to last, right? How many restaurant workers who might own a house and are paying their, we're paying the mortgages and are going to get that, you know, three to four months or five months of suspension uh, or, or those payments tacked on to the end of their loan. Um, how many of them are not going to be able to find another restaurant job because all the restaurants are closed, <laughs> right? Like, like that's the other thing, right? Like how long can this uh, hold? That's to me, like the big question. The, 
this matters and I think it's important, but I think the people who are most at risk currently are tenants who are facing landlords who are sometimes holding the bag for a mortgage, sometimes not, but who are being insistent and in many cases uh, harassing tenants um, to force them to pay rent with money they don't have, right? Um, and so I think that is probably where I think the biggest risk is um, currently of like increasing homelessness, um, of having these like really, really negative um, social outcomes. But I, yeah, that's, that's probably where I would see like the biggest, the biggest risk is in the rental sector. Yeah, I think they're talking about homeowners uh, just in general, like earlier. I mean, I think it's focusing on them is, I think, interesting, not because I think they're vulnerable or I, you know, have more sympathy for their situation. In fact, I, you know, generally have less than renters across the board. Uh, but what the main difference is, uh, we have the fun uh, choice to have made our financial industry extremely dependent upon the stability and eternal growth of real estate. Uh, and as we saw in 2008, if you have real estate values go up to you know 200, then down to 100, you have issues. And over the last uh, over the last 10 years, we've seen real estate uh, you know grow a lot in value, especially in weird places like here. And if you bought your house for you know. Two million, and now it's valued at a million. Or if you buy it at five hundred thousand, now it's worth two hundred thousand. I mean, who knows if that's possible? But if the economy really craters, you would expect real estate values to decline, and this would, you know, be like a second wave, which might be a lot like two thousand eight. To be honest, right? Like the reality is, there is a lot of pent up demand, right? There is a lot of money that will be spent, right? The question is, in what capacity, um, how and where, and like, can those businesses, can those industries come back? Have we, is COVID-19 like a temporary blip in people's psyche? Or do you have the thing that happens in depressions, right? In which the psychology of markets ends up leading to greater and greater immiseration, right? Um, I wonder how many people are going to go to Disneyland, right? It's the biggest yeah. employer in Anaheim, California. I think it's the biggest employer in Orange County. Um, and that's like if tomorrow you snap your fingers and COVID is is cured, even then it's iffy. But I mean, people exactly. are still going to, you know, we're, we're not even close to being there yet. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's that thing, right? That skittishness of like, do I buy a new car? Do I buy a new television, right? Do I spring for that, you know, uh, yoga intensive uh, in uh, Bali or wherever, right? Like, do people's sort of like uh, 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 spending change, which of course is the economy, right? That that is that that is other people's jobs, whether or not those come back. One of the biggest risks, like the thing that I just cannot stop thinking about is the uh, impact on individual capacity in the sense of you have a restaurant and you they force you to close the restaurant because you know like people could die 
um, but you oh you employed 15 people, 20 people, servers, um, cooks, uh, potentially a bartender or two, and so on and so on. You reopen the restaurant, right? Fewer people come back. And so you end up not needing 20 people. You only need 12, right? And so those eight people who are no longer working at your restaurant will look for jobs at other restaurants, but assuming that this is a broad sort of reduction in the workforce. Do they then have to change their profession or change their 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 métier? And like in that case, what happens, right? Or do people just simply drop out of the economy, which is what happens in, in recessions, right? People drop off, yeah, right. And in the best of cases, maybe they retire, maybe they they, they take up you know I don't know hobby hobbies, maybe they go into public service. Uh, maybe they become stay-at-home parents, so on and so on. In the worst of cases, they kill themselves. That's what happens, yeah. right? You know? No, I, I think. I mean, there's people who are gleeful at you know saying like uh, like degrowth activists saying, "Oh, the economy shouldn't be growing. In fact, we need to live simpler." I mean, there's like uh, the noted political theorist Thomas Lord uh, is very very happy at times like this uh, for you know just saying like, "Oh yeah, the economy is going to shrink in real terms." Uh, but the the problem is the way we've built it up. This like, how do we all live? You know, because like even if we're living simply, people need food, shelter, and then let's be honest, like kind of the means to be happy and fulfilled in life. And usually, if you just get this kind of massive contraction in you know a depression uh, situation like this, it's not going to leave most people with the capacity to be both. Uh, you know, safe and healthy and fulfilled. Uh, in fact, a lot of people are going to be put in, in awful situations. Yeah. And, and I, you could. Yeah. How many marriages are going to break up, right? Like how many, uh, uh, how many like more abuse cases are you going to have because of this? So I just like, I just keep thinking about like the individual personal impacts of, of, of this kind of, uh, of thing. And like, seriously, the people who are like very, very happy about this kind of outcome, because, you know, it means like whatever, less traffic in their city or something like that. I don't think are really, really thinking through what it means on an individual personal level to go through a financial crisis, a personal financial crisis, right? Um, yeah. I think the other thing, of course, and I think this is something that we do have to talk about, which is that if this does have an impact on prices of land and on prices of uh, housing, and there it does, uh, and there is a either not a foreclosure crisis, but like an increase in foreclosures, or there is an increase in sales uh, because people can't afford uh, to pay rent or 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 mortgages anymore. Um, I think we need to talk start talking about what structures do we need to put in place to make sure that we have benevolent buyers for those places uh, and for that land before sort of like vulture capital ghouls come in and buy up you know, huge swaths of our cities and our communities. We can't get, I mean, let's say you're talking about in the future, uh, private equity buying up stuff at fire sale prices is already happening. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, perhaps not to the extent we'll see. I think the most affected businesses, for example, like uh, who is, I think the most prominent, uh, you know, major catastrophe is like restaurants Mm -hmm. and uh, private equity has been buying up restaurant franchisees and other things uh, just like like demons yeah. in the last uh, couple of months. And you're absolutely right that I think if we treat this without real thought, we're going to see Blackstone and other private equity uh, buy up 
all of our cities. Yeah, uh, just own them. And yeah, which I'll say, I mean, maybe that's step one on uh, the cities getting it themselves. But why don't we cut out the middleman and just have the cities acquire it? Uh, you know, I mean, when you say benevolent buyers, I'd say if a city's acquiring it, uh, I'd say that's uh, that's a definition of benevolent if it has democratic control. Right, and right. It's well run. Yeah, if there yeah. is if there is some democratic control in there and it is well run, you know, I obviously would like to have it in like closer to the to to those communities. You know, obviously community land trusts are like one huge potential uh, repository for for those land and units. Um, looking at you know the nonprofit sector. Um, and uh, uh, community development corporations, um, uh, religious institutions, uh, uh, even educational institutions, potentially like participating in figuring out how they can be partners in maintaining um, local community ownership over land and housing instead of you know Wall Street um, uh, coming in and essentially um becoming uh your city's landlord right <laughs> like just becoming a just massive succubus for capital in your city right so here's a, here's a question as far as you know topa and copa and all these these things it can be an issue on it usually means you have to muster up money at the city level oh, yeah, totally. or facilitate and, and the question is i mean i think it offers in potential a potential in a counter cyclical crisis that uh, you know, being the the first buyer in this case, whether it's community or the city directly, uh, but are people in your mind? What are the chances we're going to have the potential to allow cities to facilitate it when they're going to be broke? Well, let's just talk really. Let's just go back a little bit. I think maybe give a little bit more context on it. Um, and sure, sure, sure. I, I don't know if like folks are super familiar with this stuff, like off, off the cuff. Um, so TOPA stands for Tenant Opportunity to Purchase, and then COPA stands for Community Opportunity, Opportunity to Purchase. Um, and, you know, the most basic sense is it essentially says that um, if a building goes up for sale where there are, you know, tenant residents, that they or a nonprofit or, you know, community organization um, that's been qualified and certified uh, get the first crack at purchasing the property. And then if they're unable to purchase the property, then it goes up to the market and, you know, somebody with money bags can, can, can grab it. Um, it started in Washington, D.C. in 1980. Uh, it was the first, and for a long time, the only uh, tenant opportunity to purchase policy in the country. And it didn't, become, it didn't start becoming, um, uh, it didn't reach scale. I, I won't say it wasn't successful. I, I, I will say that it didn't reach scale up until the city started allocating dedicated yearly revenue from its uh, from its housing trust fund to acquiring properties on a yearly basis, so that the tenants could have access to some capital to be able to leverage both the um, the monies that they had on hand plus the rents that they were paying to be able to acquire those properties. Um, what's been successful in the community opportunity to purchase in San Francisco, which passed in 2017 sorry, in 2018 and, and went into effect in 2019, has been that the city has been providing a lot of funding for acquisition, uh, for acquisition of, of, of properties. As cities around the Bay are thinking about like potentially adopting a Topa Cup policy, a COPA policy, uh, that question of like municipal funding has been like coming up a lot. But I think the second question is not so much like, oh, the city's broke or the city's not broke, 
in in reality, a lot of cities have funds available even during these kinds of sort of massive economic crises because all, much of local money, um, sorry, of local housing money doesn't come from local sources, right? It comes from state sources, it comes from federal sources and, and so on. Um, it's better to have local money, quite honestly, because it has fewer strings on it and it doesn't have to go to certain specific groups. Uh, especially best to raise it from like property taxes or from transaction taxes and so on and so on, um, uh, or even from hotel taxes. Um, but those monies that cities have for a long time have just been focused on production. Like every almost every dime from local housing trust funds has been just, been just going to uh, production. The question is, can we shift the focus and the priority of local governments to the preservation of existing housing um, through that COPA-TOPA policy. Because COPA-TOPA is just a mechanism, right? And if the mechanism doesn't have um, uh, financing available, it's, it's, it's toothless. Like it, does, it, won't, it won't be an effective strategy, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I have to admit, I've been having a minor panic attack while um, we've been having this conversation because I have been kind of, um, you know, thinking about COPA and TOPA type policies uh, getting implemented around the Bay and whether they can help tenants um, in times like these. And then real, and then I'm, I feel like I'm coming to the realization that we are absolutely not prepared uh, for this moment at all. I mean, like, we don't have the money. I mean, even if we have the political will, we don't have the, where are we gonna get the money to, you know, save the tenants? And this is a, it's a bit of, a, of, a, of an unfortunate mismatch. I think the places that have, I think the boldest ideas have at once, uh, you know, the, the most issues with countercyclical deficits uh, and lack of power, as opposed to, you know, the feds, uh, you know, can basically, you know, not only allocate money, but then also uh, they have the central bank. They can create money mm-hmm. uh, and really do stuff. But will they help tenants in our cities? I mean, knowing just the GOP, uh, you know, I think every single GOP voter is going to say, no, tenants aren't people. Uh, you know, <laughs> screw them. Uh, yeah. And and that's I mean, and then on top of it, uh, you know, I mean, and this I mean, I just want to also bring that into the fact that it's a similar situation with protecting tenants with like rent forgiveness. Cities don't really have as much power to try to create statutes uh, that they can fight in courts and the feds, you know, we get a few people, uh, you know, saying let's let's go to protect tenants at a federal level, but that's not going to happen. Like they won't, Congress will one hundred percent not do that. Yeah, there are two, there are two pieces of legislation on the table right now. Um, one is from uh, Goddess Empress uh, Representative uh, Ilhan Omar uh, from the Minnesota's fifth district. Uh, that would uh, essentially do the you know, nationwide rent cancellation during the COVID nineteen response, and it also includes Which is a, correct. I'd say in my mind, <laughs> yeah, we correct, need it and it's correct. Um, and also include a buyout fund, um, a, a buyout fund for landlords who decide that you know they want to get out of the of the business because of this you know massive rent cancellation. That the they're inspired to get a real job. Government will, you know, buy their properties at fair market value. So um, national and level allow it to transfer it to local, you know, benevolent owners, community organizations, nonprofit housing developers, community land trusts. Um, that one, you know, it's got it's 
got a ways to go. Um, you know, we're, yeah. we're maybe we're like a dozen Congress members support it or something like that at this point. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's it's definitely not. You know, but you know, someone has to introduce the idea, right? right. Like, how many co-sponsors did Medicare for All have, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, the there's another bill which I think is called the Emergency Rental Assistance Act. Um, I think, I can't remember which, I think it might have been Pramila Jayapal who introduced this one. Um, and that one would provide $100 billion in uh, rent relief, uh, direct rent relief for, um, I think, income eligible renters um, who are experiencing income loss or some other kind of impact based on, based on COVID-19. Um, that is, you know, it has a lot more. I think it's it's up to 150 co-sponsors. It has a lot more support. Um, but unfortunately, I think, you know, if you think about it in in two ways, it's it's rent relief for tenants, but at the same time, it's also just like direct money going to landlords, right? So it's just wealth transfer from the government to landlords as well. Um, so in some ways, it's it's both it's a super helpful bill, and I think it would you know, be a boon to families who are experiencing um, uh, income loss, right? To not have to worry about rent for a few months. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't know that it shifts the power relationship that we you know are trying to, to to move. So, yeah, I'm not willing to like you know you know uh, you know die on the sword to you know uh, look for the perfect bill, and if it is something which is awful but helps renters i can definitely get behind it but i really hope I and mean, we're talking about bailouts people are pushing for oh you should get equity and if we are essentially bailing out landlords it would be nice if we have a way to kind of scrape back equity at the least and it you know yeah. sucks that that's not it's not on the table right now but i would love to see some strings least... attached right like absolutely just like even if you don't get equity like i would love to see some strings attached it's like you're allowed to, you yeah. know, you can't access, you cannot access this fund unless you pledge X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? Like your yeah, state yeah. is not allowed to touch this. But I mean, if you do that, then Mississippi is going to like, well, too bad. I guess we're just not going to, we're just not going to touch this, this yeah. renter yeah. assistance fund. <laughs> and they're just going to screw every, you know, black person in Jackson. And, and <laughs> you know, it's going to be, yeah. I, I think so we just I, have to worry. I, I don't. I don't know if I'm remembering this incorrectly, but I, I think the CEO of Boeing was like, "I would rather just let the company die than let the government get equity <laughs> through bailing us out." I feel like number one, he's probably like. I mean, you know, they love saying uh, stuff like that, but yeah, he would one hundred percent take the money. Um, <laughs> like they would, they will always take the money. Yeah. There is no greater example of socialism than like large blue cap companies. Um, but uh, I will say, like, I remember during the last financial crisis when uh, when the auto industries got bailed out, the government did take equity, and then and then oh, and the unions got equity too. The UAW got equity as well, um, and then very quickly just sold it back, <laughs> just sold the company oh. back to the company. Like they sold their one, I think it was like thirty something percent stake in like the big three automakers and just like sold it right back to the company so they could go back on the public market again. So I think the government just says is like allergic to owning parts of the industry. They kind of plug the, uh, can I, you know, even though I've, I've, my opinion of Brunig has gone down dramatically recently, um, can I plug the, uh, the Sovereign Wealth Fund in the United States uh, paper by, yeah. uh, by, uh, by Matt Brunig uh, in the People's, uh, People's Policy Project? 
um, is an amazing document, and it's a really, really good argument for having um, at least partial government ownership of very, very large companies, especially in key, like, uh, commanding heights of the economy industries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it sucks that it... Uh... It sucks that it, uh, you know, hasn't really gotten hold in a point that, you know, if, if this was a major rallying cry for five, ten years, you know, maybe we'd be ahead of it to actually gain equity this time. But it's we're, it's still a bit fringy right now. Yeah. I mean, it's a fringy everywhere. I mean, yeah, it's like it's famously was used in Sweden to some extent back in the 80s, but they kind of rolled it back even a bit. Yeah. No, we didn't we didn't lay the groundwork. And that's completely true. Like, I think in in the wake of you know, 10 year, 10 years of expansion, I think the focus was on redistribution, right? It was like, there's a lot of money. And, uh, you know, the wealthy are getting the most of it. And, you know, working people should get a bigger slice of it through redistributive programs. I don't think we thought about um, thinking pre distribution about reallocation of power and resources, right? Like in the production of capital, like how do workers actually have a say and a piece of the decision making during the production uh, of of of, cap of of wealth, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think this is also this is kind of it's big picture ideology. I think in some ways, when an ideology doesn't just work in ideas alone. It has to be at a time in which you need answers and need to come in and say, hey, I have answers for you. And I think we're facing a bunch of crises. And if someone is able to come in and say, uh, you know, oh, you know, all these fiscal issues, I can solve that for you. I think everything from, uh, you know, crazy stuff like, uh, you know, Gesellian, you know, uh, you know, MMT style yeah. Uh, you know, money policy to stuff like UBI, to stuff like land taxes, yeah. uh, to stuff, you know, I think across the board, these all solve issues. And it is, you know, I think it's 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 not it's not inappropriate for uh, people to jump in and say, you know, I, I can actually solve your problem. And I think people like, you know, like Nathan Tankus or something is doing a great job at taking a bunch of fuddy duddies and saying, like, you know what, everything you assumed about the economy is is turned on its head right now yeah uh yeah and i i'm i'm i mean i think it's it's a challenge but i think i'm really optimistic that people are more open-minded than ever yeah i mean i think the one of the tiny tiny i mean just an absolutely sliver of a trend pre-covid19 uh crisis was the like growing unionization in white collar workplaces plus a growing like socialization and and co-opted like uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, but socialization, democratization of workplaces, and having collective ownership and like having more co-ops. I think that is definitely hopefully going to be a much much bigger trend uh, after COVID nineteen. I think restaurant owners and like uh, small enterprises and especially like tiny tech companies. Uh, who are already doing kind of like revenue sharing or already doing kind of like uh, options or things like that are going to start realizing really that, you know, this place doesn't run <laughs> without your workers. Like there is no restaurant <laughs> without your workers. Like they should own a piece of this place. Right. And hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm looking at what UFCW has been doing um, around, especially around the, the May, the May Day strike. Um, I'm looking at labor. You know, I'm looking at labor to 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 really take 
um, uh, a stand in this moment uh, to really confront like large uh, companies uh, who are not stepping up to the plate for their for these frontline workers. You know, I'm looking at the healthcare sector. I'm looking at the at the uh, services sector, looking at the warehouse sector, um, and I'm you know I'm hoping to see some 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 confrontational like labor activity over the next year to try to organize these places uh because like i mean banging pots and pans outside at 7 p.m is all nice and well and like thanking all nice of our well, heroes <laughs> you know is like good and i want to thank all these heroes but i would also like to give them you know a living wage and a union uh, as part of our like collective thanks for for the work that they've done for risking their lives in this yeah. time you know I mean, desperation opens up a lot of, you know, eyes to say that, you know, it's time to actually put some stuff on the line here. Right. I mean, you know, depending on who you're talking to, there's going to be some detractors of the Wagner Act and about how it uh, sort of like uh, bureaucratized the uh, the labor movement. But, you know, it, it passed in 1935 and that was not an accident, right? Like we did not get the explosion of, of, of labor uh, uh, unionization until the Great Depression, right? And labor activism, right? The sort of like managerial unionism of the 90s and the early 2000s only ended with the Great Recession, right? And that's, that, that was the beginning of, of the sort of uh, uh, democratic unionism, right? Well, so, so as far as kind of just like, like I think, you know, through the 70s, but even before that, you know, through the late 60s and beyond, uh, you know, declining union participation rates. What's what's your theory of of you know what went wrong in neoliberalism. America? I mean, like uh, the neoliberalism. Even, though, even I've been trying neoliberalism. to use that. I've been trying to I've been trying to use that that word less actually in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I will say there there's a bunch of co- I mean I don't want to really get super super deeply into it uh, because there's some macroeconomic uh, uh, trends. Um, that happened worldwide that led to, of course, a lot of uh, the decentralization of, 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 uh, of, uh, of capital and of, of industry, um, and obviously led to the just dramatic decrease in, 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 in union participation and, and, and uh, in union rates, right? I mean, globalization was probably the biggest. I mean, I mean if you could put it down to one specific thing, uh, globalization, especially of heavy manufacturing, was essentially the biggest the biggest cause for the decrease in union density uh, overall. Basically, mm. uh, the second thing, of course, is changes in laws um, in the 1970s and 1980s that made labor organizing just a lot tougher. Um, the Reagan administration being, I think, probably like that was the not the death knell, but I think like just like that was the um, that was one of the biggest, toughest moments ever for the labor movement of making it through those 12 years of the Reagan-Bush era. And then, like, you know, I I don't want to blame the labor movement, but yeah, you know, labor movement, you know, uh, rested on its laurels, right? It got, um, and it, I think, was um, so scarred and so demoralized by the Reagan administration, um, like the Petco strike being, I think, the, the, that, the biggest sort of flashpoint moment uh, 
there were a lot of fights at, at that time that, that labor lost big large public fights that labor lost right that they ended up um, um, that they ended up uh, uh, being a you know having a little bit of a back foot right um, and I think that mentality didn't change until the 1997 UPS strike. Um, and then it, I think, was not a, a, it didn't really, really, really shift until the early 20 teens when the Fight for 15 campaign um, and the sort of like social unionism that tried to it really, really reach non-union workers and really try to like raise standards for uh, for entire sectors started becoming more and more of the thinking within uh, union leadership and within union research departments. And I think the moment that we're in right now um, is an interesting moment. Like, I think I've never seen, I've never seen this many strikes. I've never seen this, this militant of a, of, of union leadership, like Sarah Nelson for, for AFL-CIO president, goodness gracious, you know? <laughs> Yeah, she's amazing. So I I don't know if like you know if it's if it's right or appropriate to kind of draw you know too much of connections between uh, you know I mean urban issues. I mean I think we're talking about you know cities, people being in proximity, uh, you know people dealing with each other. Uh, I, mean, I think you talk about kind of uh, you know both at the workplace and uh, you know I, I just I worry about the isolation we're seeing and whether it's, you know, going to make it a challenge for people to work together and, you know, care about each other. I mean, I think there's nothing I really like dread more than the fact that people who are affected the least by this uh, are people like live in some, you know, cul-de-sac and just, you know, have a big, you know, freezer and just, you know, it's like, this is, they have a home office and just everything's normal. And honestly, I find the entire style of living, not not just aesthetically disgusting, but I think it also is just it it is all about private spaces, and I think that it's just it's it's I worry that insofar as there is a connection between the left process of of people having to share spaces together and how it's going to lead to us caring about each other is is that something uh, you know worth fixating on in your mind? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, my only take is that like. You know, like, I just always, like, I, union, well, unions, it's not just unions, but it's, like, um, people, I think, living in close proximity to each other develop immunities, right? And they develop uh, a kind of uh, uh, inner protection against what I think are even worse diseases than COVID-19, Right. Um, they develop uh, an, Im- an immunity against um, like anime, uh, against uh, sometimes racism, against uh, austerity thinking, against uh, uh, selfishness. And I think that having that interpersonal um, relationship, especially those social networks within cities, right, where you know the people who work at the store where you shop at all the time, where you can ask your neighbor for sugar, where your grandma lives down the road, having that kind of like that social fabric, right? I think keeps people alive. Like, I don't just mean in like the material sense, in the sense of like, it keeps people alive, it's like it feeds them and people watch their children. 
I think it keeps them from the kind of despair that happens through social isolation. The people that you just described, the people who live, like you said, in big cul-de-sacs and they like have their home office and they drive their big trucks and stuff like that. In many cases, they are isolated in their individual spaces. But, you know, I think you'd be very surprised just how social these people are, like just how much they go to the Apple just how much they go to the Lions Club, how much they go to their golf course or whatever, right? Applebee's America. Applebee's America. You'd be very surprised just how much actual, you know, meets, like how much time they spend in the meat space. Um, and I think like what could happen because of COVID-19 is that as those interactions decrease, as those spaces are closed or limited or, 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 um, or, or distanced from from them, I think you are going to see a reaction from people <laughs> uh, in a way, right? You are going to see that kind of that that kind of uh, yearning for 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 human contact. Uh, there's going to be, I think, uh, unfortunately, increases in anxiety, increases in depression, increases in suicides um, if there isn't a way to to restore that sense of of community and to restore that sense of society. Um, you know, I'm I'm not hopeful, super super hopeful about um, how the country will um, the country. I mean, the government, the United States government, will respond to COVID nineteen um, because of what I've seen what's happened in the last couple of months. But I am actually very very hopeful that the people of America will, I think, respond in a way that will recreate those social spaces, uh, that will recreate those interpersonal um, uh, places and, 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 and ways of living. It's going to look different. It's probably going to feel different. But I think that, I, I think people, I mean, I'm seeing it now already. I think people like are, are, are um, aching for it, like aching for that connection. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just worried about being like too doomy, but like having like a to use the word again, a neoliberal uh, dystopia of a sort. Of I just hate the fact libraries are closed, but like Amazon is still chugging along as normal, and it's just like it's you know that drive-throughs are open, but you know kind of people you know hanging out at a fast food place is, is off limits. It definitely feels like things are accelerating. Yeah, and I I don't know. I mean, I just I I I just uh I, I worry that like building the infrastructure for separation is is you know increasing and i think you know it's like you know, people uh, it was like you know 1995 or so bowling alone or what yeah yeah, yeah. The, the robert putnam book yeah and i feel like it's like if that was the 90s you know what is what is the post-covid bowling alone going to be like oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, i'm personally spending a ton of time and money building that infrastructure for myself and like you know because i have to work at home yeah, I totally get what you're talking yeah. about um, there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We're we're like basically making it easier to like atomize uh, ourselves uh, mm-hmm. of, like uh, social spaces. Yeah, I mean, I I'll be honest with you. Even though like my my current work is like pretty place based, have I looked into moving to a place where I could work from home and like live in a like affordable place where like there are public spaces available and like well-funded public services 
yes, totally. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That is definitely something that I'm already like looking at. And, you know, does that separate me from my current community and from the people that I know and love? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the other thing, right? Are, are people going to start making some pretty significant, you know, life decisions that they wouldn't have had, uh, they would have done uh, pre, pre-COVID-19? Um, at the same time, though, you know, not to be crude about it, but like, you know, I think people are going to, you know, want to meet, you know? Uh, like, I feel like I think, you know, the restaurants are going to reopen. I think, I think the seating space in restaurants is going to reopen. You know, um, yeah. Like I think you're, you're talking about the there's like a libidinal thing about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. I think there's definitely like I think there's definitely like the aspect of yeah. you now just people needing to be in spaces together. That that stuff is still gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's like the thing. It's like cities are not people. People are saying, oh, it's this is the death of urbanism because people won't be together. It's like even people in the suburbs. They get together. You they, know, they do. Get together. You know, nobody yeah, so talks it's... about nobody talks about the uh, the uh, the uh, the active uh, you know rampant community of uh, of uh, suburbanites. You know, like they yeah. are constantly meeting up with each other. <laughs> you know, as, as your the ways yeah. that we like. Yeah. I mean, though we like or recognize, probably not, but they do. They meet up constantly. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's it's so cliche, but like you know, when you're in Cupertino or Palo Alto, it's just like the boba, the boba shop, you know. Oh, the it's packed. Boba shop, the third boba shop. Those are the yeah. your social it's spaces. Packed. It's packed. I mean, you're talking about the main strips, though. I mean, I think you know, it's, the places we have, it's you know, the stuff that's like really miserable is when it's just uh, you have blocks that are you know three quarters of a mile long with no sidewalks. And, yeah. You know, just oh yeah, yeah. I mean, my worry, my worry is actually going to be not so much the organized interactions, right? Not like the meeting at the restaurant or the meeting at the whatever, the Elk Club or something like that. What I'm more worried about is like people having like personal, individual isolation because of COVID-19. You know what I mean? Where it's like, well, I can't just walk down the street. I can't just walk down California like in in, um, in Palo Alto and like run into people anymore or whatever, right? Because that's just not a thing that people do anymore, right? Like people Especially just, adding that like, on top of unemployment yeah. and um, austerity. Yeah, exactly. It's a scary combination for sure. Yeah. And also like I think there's an age factor to this as well, right? Like if COVID-19, like if, if there isn't a, uh, a, a, a vaccine or a cure, you know, and the idea is, you know, we have just low level risk, right, for especially like uh, uh, at risk populations, you know, do we doom people who are at risk to essentially confinement, right, uh, for the foreseeable future? That's a or just in, or, in, or high risk themselves. I mean, I'll say it's like back in like in Ohio, I'm hearing reports uh, of my you know, folks and all this. Uh, and I mean, like I think my mom, my grandma were holed up for like a solid month, and now my mom's back in Cincinnati uh, area, and honestly, the block uh, is like acting like it's normal. People are like hanging out with you know social distance in quotes. They're not really showing good restraint really? on porches. That's interesting. Like in this like. 
yeah, it's like the neighbors now, like they're they have like they're growing chickens in the backyard, and like yeah, just like this. It sounds like it's like oh, it's actually really appealing. Some of the facts, like boy, I, people aren't staying safe. But I mean, I think that the issue is like on one hand, I want to be very sensible about public health. But on the other hand, I'm just saying it's boy, it's like I it, it feels like a it, it's living in this public health emergency is like gives me an idea of what it feels like to be a right-wing paranoid freak or something all the time <laughs> just like it's like people live this way uh, uh, like uh and it's not it's not healthy it's not humane and i i want it to go away before yeah. it kills us or something yeah. yeah i've been dipping into that mindset quite a bit uh, I, i'm drenching my mind and my brain and that those juices uh lately uh just because yeah. of more and getting more interested in like right-wing paranoia and right-wing conspiracy theories in general <laughs> yeah no i've seen some wild stuff one of the things that i'm starting to like really uh appreciate i almost is the dusk the the death cults that have like kind of sprung up you know like the like what is dead may never die type sort of like bill mitchell uh death cultism where it's like I mean, if we must die for the economy, we must die. You know, oh, yeah. like, it's just like that is incredible stuff. Like, I will sacrifice I, well, everyone for my. It's my, hard uh, not to. It's hard not to love the the like just the the joy of 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 you know dying with that kind of. Yeah, <laughs> of, it was of, like of I'd rather die than not get my haircut at Supercuts. You know, <laughs> like yeah. yeah. Mitchell had an incredible post where he said something along the lines of, uh, "If the COVID uh, deaths are under." 200,000 deaths. Uh, we basically have to name Trump the best president ever. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, oh, that's sure. just posting. That is, that is posting I can't even argue with that, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I just I feel like it kind of reflects of just trying to balance the two parts of ourselves of you know solving problems, being sane and sensible, and a bit you know uh, you know standoffish and rational, and then also just like living life you know humanely and you know meaningfully and with you know. Uh, with some like you know sense of beauty and, and friendship to it, but like we're not really mixing these well or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, just... I think unfortunately, like things got politicized, like, and I feel like it got really politicized in the last couple of weeks. But at least initially, I think it was just like, yo, like your your actual relatives, you know, or people you know might actually like might like get this and die from it. And so I think there was just like much more social cohesion around it. But at some point, people, I think there was a moment at which point people realized that we, this works, right? Like that, that social distancing works, right? And that the preventative measures work. And we did, in some ways, you know, in most parts of the country, flatten the curve, right? And like the big risk, what almost like every public health per, like, expert had warned people before even these things went into effect was that you're going to see improvement you're going to see reductions but you have to keep on it or else you're going to have like a second wave right but like the like people psychology is that well we did it it worked okay why can't i go get a haircut now right like you know what i mean yeah. like that's that that psychology is just like very very hard to counter and it's just taken on a lot of like political um, uh, characteristics that it just shouldn't, you know, like, oh, Democrats want you to stay home. Republicans want to liberate you or let you go 
go go and do things. And, and I think to go back, I mean, to all this, it's like the fact of, okay, we need to all work together to stay healthy. But honestly, we're not all pulling together. Some people are taking a lot more pain than others. Yeah, And totally. I think people are right. And people are right to say it's like, are you really going to see all this, you know, undo damage on everybody and not actually work to redistribute the pain better? And we're, yeah. I don't think we're, and that's what we're. I think we're not really willing to do to the point. And that's I think what's scary is that we just shows uh, our ability to deal with a with a crisis. Uh, we're just not willing to kind of really face it head on. We just want to kind of do as little as possible to muddle through it. That's and that's exactly, not enough. There was a huge fight, right? Like, I think it was uh, Senator Bennett's office who got that $600 a weekly unemployment insurance boost added on to the, the CARES Act version, whatever. I don't remember what version it was. And in, I mean, in some states, like in a place like Mississippi, that $600 a week local um, unemployment insurance benefit would up to something like over $3,000, right? Um, a month. Um, and most, you know, most low wage workers in Mississippi do not make $3,000 a month, right? And there was this whole argument about how, um, uh, uh, oh, are we disincentivizing work? Are we paying workers to stay home? And are we doing too much to help like working class people who were asking to essentially like be laid off for for an indefinite period of time with no promise of whether or not they're ever going to be able to get back to work. And can you like understand like the poverty of like thinking that 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 is or like that engenders that we're doing too much for the people who Well they they want like the old the old rule book of like how do we actually compel people to work for us and do all this like uh, like people like, don't want to rock the boat. Like that also, was the yeah. wildest thing, where it was like, oh, we're we're giving people too much money in order to incentivize them to stay home, um, and like help reduce the the spread of a global pandemic. Like it was a wild moment and thought. And like right now, like a bunch of these, you know, uh, um, uh, governors are trying to reopen their uh, their states just so they can kick people off of unemployment. Like, they're like, okay, well, we reopen the state, your business is back open. If you don't show up to work, then that means you've given up your your job and you're no longer eligible for unemployment benefits, right? Like, that's just the kind of, like, thinking and actions that are, like, actually taking place in, in some of these states. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the unemployment or the that uh, welfare aspect is an underrated aspect of for this right-wing push to reopen the economy i mean even among like you know the people who are showing up to protest and stuff it's not just about their sense of like freedom and uh they're feeling like they're entitled to you know get served uh at a restaurant or whatever but like i think there's like a lot of this anxiety about like you know oh we're paying people to not work and stuff like that yeah totally like i think there's definitely like been this moment where like well we can't start actually giving people an option to work, right? Like they it had they have to be forced into, you know, selling their labor for money in order to be able to survive, yeah. right? Like we cannot build a robust <laughs> social service system, right? I mean, one of the things that I thought was just very, very indicative was that when Congress did try to get money to people, 
they realize they never built the infrastructure for it, right? Yeah. They realize. Oh yeah. They realize that like, oh, not everyone has a bank account. Oh, not everyone files federal taxes. Oh, not every state has an unemployment system that works. Like they find out all of a sudden that Florida, which was one of the hardest hit states um, because of the shutdowns related to to COVID-19 and the fact that no one's flying to freaking Orlando right now, um, spent 10 years destroying their uh, unemployment insurance system to make it as hard as possible for anyone to qualify for it. And they realized they couldn't even get money out to people uh, in order <laughs> for them to be able to, to stay home, right? And it's just like, I'm just thinking about like, we are, we are essentially like now like paying the bill like this is these are the wages of sin from their from from thirty years of neoliberalism, right? Like we're we're like the the chickens have come home to roost, as uh, Malcolm X used to say. You know, like yeah. <laughs> it's just real. <laughs> we are we are we are reaping the whirlwind. You know. Yeah, I think I think I'm just outraged on like two levels. One is a like just lack of confidence that I think that us. You know, you could say it was a willful incompetence of not building the systems to actually take care of people better because we just it's the incompetence is breathtaking but on top of that is i think just the uh the dearth of creativity uh to you know just think of solutions that that help people and i think do people want everyone to work because they're just like evil or do i think it's actually just a lack of creativity that people can't imagine a different kind of world uh in which you know honestly like just you know, uh, clocking in for forty hours a week really does not need to be the baseline of humanity. It's it's kind of odd yeah. that we just can't break out of this. I mean, one of the you know, I'm just thinking about this right now, and I was like, if there was ever a time to be to start talking about a thirty-five hour week or a thirty-two hour week, this is the time, right? We're gonna have like massive like headcount reductions, and one of the ways that you can help keep people just employed is to just reduce. The, uh, the weekly hours so that you need more people, but you still pay people for a 40 hour a week, like no income reduction, right? But like hour reduction, yeah. so you can at least keep people employed, right? Um, if ever, like if ever, like the, the idea of shortening the work week um, is gonna get salience, it's gonna be now, right? Like I think, you know, I haven't seen too much yet. Like, I mean, obviously maybe I just have not been paying attention, but like this is, you know, like uh, Demos and People's Policy Project and uh, Data for Progress. This is the time, y'all. Yeah, you know? no, like you were the first the, person. This is the time. I, I think you're the first person to to talk about uh, reducing work hours in this context, and it it makes total sense to me. I mean, like, I mean, it's a thing that I think is like super important, and yeah, th this is the perfect opportunity to be talking about these issues. Yeah, I just no one... I just worry personally. It's like for hundreds of years, you know, go back to like you know Amsterdam in the 1600s. You know, kind of the Protestant work ethic had been uh, something which has actually been a advantage. If you are just a psycho who wants to work <laughs> all the time, you come out ahead. And I think we've seen in the last 50 years or so that mindset actually, uh, I think, is killing us. And I think it's uh, making us miserable. It's not even giving us material benefits. Uh, it's it's leaving us less flexible to deal with crises like these. And I think unless we kind of just rid ourselves of it, I just worry any place that has this kind of crude work ethic mindset 
it's just it's 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 a it is a death cold at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that second wave, you know, like no one's. I mean, people are talking about it, but I don't. I feel like almost no one believes it's going to happen, or we're just going to be saved by uh, Gilead or something like that, who's just going to come with like a cure or a vaccine or a treatment that makes it to where uh, it's uh, it's palatable. Um, but if there's a real second wave in the fall or in next winter, I mean, the people that were just immiserated, I mean, I think they fall off. I think they completely fall off the, the tracks. Like they lose their house, they lose their car. Like it's, it's done. Like on that, hopefully that gives us at least a little bit of time um, to work on the kind of policy that would help people on an individual basis. Like postal banking, you know, if there was ever a time to start talking about uh, making sure that every American has a as a as a free uh, postal account uh, where they can receive like benefits from the government directly. Um, you know, uh, Andrew Yang obviously now he probably seems like you know the Jeremiah or some doomsday prophet or something who would like warn people about <laughs> you know the coming effects of. of uh, of automation, but you know, is this is this the time to talk about UBI? I have thoughts about UBI. I'm not entirely sure. Super works. Part of me thinks it's like a libertarian, um, like Trojan horse. But um, you know, this is might this might start to be the time to talk about whether or not we want everyone to go to work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm opti- I mean, opt- optimistic in a lot of places. I think if we just sit down and say, well, I hope Washington is going to solve it, it's like, I don't think that's going to be a good attitude. But if mm-hmm. you say, like, I really hope that we are at every level going to be building up new institutions to deal with this, I'm actually very hopeful that people can show uh, how new waves of life mm-hmm. are possible and sustainable, and there's no better time than now uh, so I'm just, I mean, I think we just need to have the ability to show that people can can create new new things, yeah, uh, and not and not just take it passively. And I think there's been a lot of time in which we're kind of just sitting back because I think doing activism right now, doing advocacy right now, it's it's difficult. We're all it's stuck. It's tough. But, it's really tough, you know. But I think that is going to change as we find new ways to kind of get back on our feet, uh, and. Uh, you know, remotely and in, in, in other new, unpredicted ways, and I think I think people are going to, you know, think of new institutions we can't even think of yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think like the sort of like not tricks of the trade, but the things that people had relied on, right? The in-person meeting, the march, right? The demonstration, all that stuff, right? Like, I mean, obviously, potentially, we'll we'll find some workarounds for it. Uh, but yeah, it's time to be creative about what you can do. Can you do digital boycotts, right? Can you do yeah, um, like uh, actions in, in public spaces while being socially distant? I mean, it's just going to be really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's a good time to kind of you know put under your belt just weirdo heterodox thinkers. You know, Henry George, Silvio Gassell, and other because I think like just have the loopiest ideas in your mind mm-hmm. because they're going to come in handy when stuff gets weird as things are. Yeah. 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 No, I, yeah. I, I, I hear you. <laughs> uh, we've been going pretty, pretty damn long. Uh, any, any final thoughts around the board? I mean, I think like if you can and you are still working and you're still getting an income, uh, look up your local COVID-19 support fund um, and just give money. Like just go ahead and just straight up give money. 
the other thing I've been doing, and the thing I highly recommend, is is there an ice cream uh, cart pusher in your neighborhood? Is there like a uh, fruit vendor? You're like maybe you don't need the fruit. Go ahead and buy the fruit and tip heavy, like tip fifty percent, tip a hundred percent, right? And then also do not order food through DoorDash or Grubhub or any one of those things. If there's a restaurant you like, grab the name, Google the name, call the phone number, order, and then get that delivered directly through the restaurant because they are charging them like highway robbery prices. And then make sure to just tip heavy for every single like service worker uh, that you interact. Those are my final words. Uh, give your money if you have it. I, I, I'm saying bunker down. <laughs> get your get your bazookas. I'm freaking out. <laughs> that's 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 comforting. Uh, well, yeah, it's 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 been it's been fun to talk. Uh, you know, technical issues aside, uh, you know, always fun. You know, let's 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 hope let's hope talking uh, online starts to feel more like you know, being in the same space because it's like it's like five percent good uh compared to what you know 100 percent you know in, in yeah, life yeah, yeah, these yeah. days you know i'm, I'm yeah. definitely uh i've definitely tested positive from this in the home so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. well until, until later yeah all right Let's see. we have been talking to ace and ndi and ollie zoo all about municipal finance austerity in the covid world and more you can hear this episode and all previous episodes of the show at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Keisha Shiro, Stanford. <laughs>